Hello, my name is Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 6 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode we looked at Xabi Alonso's coaching philosophy, El Clasico's enduring charm, Enzo Lefe's sombre origin story and Bologna's post-Sinisa Mihailovic regression. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. Do check out the show notes for a comprehensive running order of what we discussed and when. This episode is of course produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're staying safe. Hopefully you're staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. Jones has made it home in time to join us for this episode. He was in northern Italy to take in the Bologna game on the weekend. He took his better half to that game as well. And whether or not they're still on good terms after that, perhaps we'll find out later in the podcast. But aside from that game of football, which perhaps wasn't the best in terms of the quality, Michael, how was your trip to northern Italy? Yeah, no, it was wonderful. Thank you. Um, my better half, I promised that I wouldn't refer to it as the missus on the podcast as well. But yeah, it was a splendid trip. And yeah, I only got back late last night. So still recovering from, you know, I didn't realise you could actually get jet lag over an hour time difference. But I like to think that's where I've got a little bit of I'm not being too much of a hypochondriac. Yeah, Michael, sowing the seeds for an excuse if you do slip up later on with you <laughs> one hour's jet lag oh Michael to be fair if, if you were jet lagged then you would you would be at nine minutes past seven which yeah all by all means yeah <laughs> you could be forgiven for making some mistakes oh well Rudy Powell hopefully you're not jet lagged through in Edinburgh hopefully you're all good yeah no jet lag here and um, just fearing the the coming of the dark nights of Scotland uh, which is fast approaching us um, I probably should have turned on my light before before we got got into this because yeah the cold winter is certainly setting in in Scotland and uh, it's time to time to get the cozy clothes on, Ali. Absolutely, Barlow. Time to get the cozy clothes on and time perhaps to have a look at Bayer Leverkusen. Yeah, I was going to jump in there into Germany into Deutschland and Bayer Leverkusen parted company with Gerardo Seoane following their two 0 Champions League loss away to Porto last week. When we take into account Die Werkstatt's disastrous start to the campaign, Leverkusen's decision can hardly be viewed as a, as surprising. I mean, the team from North Rhine-Westphalia find themselves second from bottom of the Bundesliga standings, and they were dumped out of the DFB Pokal in humiliating fashion by third-tier Elversburg. And yet, Sewani and Leverkusen had looked like the perfect marriage over the course of the 43-year-old's maiden season at the Bayarina with the Swiss coach guiding the club to third place in the Bundesliga, which is their best finish in seven years, 
So, Ali, where did it all go wrong for Sewani? And looking forward, what can we expect from his successor, the exciting Xabi Alonso? Yeah, I think this is a really romantic appointment, Barlow, isn't it, Xabi Alonso? But before we do go on to speak about what we can expect from him and what we learned from his first game in charge, we do, I think, have to dwell on, yeah, where it did all go wrong for Gerardo Sewani. They were in a terrible, terrible way when he left and it did seem for all the world like it had just gone totally wrong and I think Barlow when there is such a drop off in form you immediately think there's something something wrong in the dressing room and this is this is a cheap observation to make perhaps it's a lazy observation to make but I think maybe this was just a classic case of Gerardo Selwan losing the Bayer Leverkusen dressing room, this was the club's worst start to a campaign since gaining promotion to the top flight in 1979 and in addition to Ceylon losing the dressing room, I do think there are several factors which help us understand that shocking drop-off in form at the start of the season. Now, I've alluded at the start of the section to the fact that I think Ceylon did lose the dressing room and to put it one way, Selwan is known to have quite a difficult personality, shall we say, and certain players were performing way below the levels they had reached last season, which again said, suggests to me that they no longer wanted to play for him. They were no longer willing to put any effort in. They were no longer to do anything more than the bare minimum. Selwan also speaks a whole host of languages, which on the one hand is commendable, can come in really useful, can come in very helpful. But the word on the street is that he would bounce between languages midway through team talks and when dishing out instructions, which naturally proved to be detrimental to the team's overall cohesion and collective spirit. I think that combination of the difficult personality and the fact that players were confused if there's a coach giving a team talk to you and he's bouncing from language to language to language, you're not going to know exactly what is expected of the other players. And then that obviously then feeds into your overall understanding of the game. So you can see why it probably was starting to break down for Selwyn and Bayer Leverkusen. It is a shame. It's a huge shame that the Selwyn project has ended like this as let's not forget that he had Leverkusen playing some gorgeous free-flowing football last campaign. They actually scored a club record 80 top-flight goals and, of course, they secured a place in the Champions League group stages. Now, before I do move on to some of the other factors at play here, which played into Leverkusen's drop-off in form at the start of the season, I do just want to point out that Selwyn's successor, Xabi Alonso, is also multilingual, but Hopefully he'll be able to strike a better balance when communicating with his players. I, I do think Selwan probably did get it wrong if what we're hearing, the word on the street, if that is correct um, in terms of bouncing between languages. You can see how confusing that would be and you can see how that would sow the seeds of division within the changing room. Elsewhere, I've never really been convinced by Lucas Radecki, the Bayer-Leverkusen goalkeeper, and he has had a particularly dismal start to the season. I think when you look at a lot of teams that struggle, it can all be brought back to an underperforming goalkeeper, a goalkeeper that doesn't instill any confidence in his or her defence. 
And when we look at Radecki's underlying numbers, they well, they're actually fairly surprising. They suggest that he's only conceded 0.4 goals more than he would have been expected to based on the XG of the shots he's faced. But ostensibly, anyway, he seems to have made error after error. And that, in turn, will always sap the confidence of the back line in front of the goalkeeper. And I think, on the same note, Radecki's just not a goalkeeper who has any real command of his box. I think he's loved by the Finnish national team fans. And I think maybe there are some Bayer Leverkusen fans out there who do enjoy having him as the number one. But the general consensus these days in particular, is that he simply isn't good enough to be playing for a team that really wants to be challenging at the top end of a team in the top five European leagues. We do also have to mention that Leverkusen decided to loan out Leonard Grail to Union Berlin, which again left him quite short in the goalkeeping department and made Radecki's position even more comfortable. So you have a goalkeeper there who A, probably isn't good enough and a goalkeeper who also B, is far too comfortable, knows that his performance levels can really drop off and he'll probably still just about be the number one choice for the coach. So I think that's a huge factor as well. Hradecki's had a really difficult start to the season and while he's capable of pulling off some fantastic saves, I just don't think, generally speaking, he's been good enough and particularly at the start of this season, he's not been anywhere near the levels that Leverkusen would require. At the other end of the park, they struggled to by Leverkusen. We mentioned that they scored a club record 80 goals in the league last season, but this time around they've been really quite wasteful. I'm going to single out Patrick Schick here as well. Let's not forget he was superb over the course of that 80-goal campaign uh, last time out, and he had an excellent Euros. Scotland fans won't really enjoy me reminding them of the wonder goal he scored past David Marshall, but... He had a wonderful Euros and then a fantastic domestic campaign as well. But this time around, only 10 players across Europe's top five leagues have underperformed against their expected goals more than the 26-year-old Czech Republic international. So Sheik, like most of his teammates, had looked so devoid of confidence latterly under Seoane. Again, up in the final third of the park, I do have to say, no verts, no party. Florian Wurz was in terrific form last season until he suffered that devastating ACL injury in March. Without him, Leverkusen have really lacked somebody who can carry the ball into the final third and unlock defences. Again, just focusing on Wurz's underlying numbers, they're mind-boggling for a player so young. 92nd percentile for carries into the final third, 99th percentile for goal-creating actions, 96th percentile for key passes, 96th percentile for XG assisted. Quite simply, Barlow Wurtz is a superstar in the making who really enables those around him to flourish. You take Wurtz out of that team, you lose a huge part of their creative spark. You lose a pivotal player in their construction, in their final third, and ultimately in their goal output. I think as well, while it's good to have some young players in your team, and on the podcast we are huge fans of promoting young players coming through and looking at their development, looking at their style of play. Leverkusen do have the fourth youngest squad in the division, and they are particularly inexperienced in the back. Now, I'm not echoing Alan Hansen's claims that you can't win anything with kids. I really like some of the young defenders at Leverkusen, but 
it does just feel Barrow like they're crying out for a wise older head in that defence to just bring some composure and some experience. Pradeki is vocal, but those attributes are negated by the fact that, as I was saying earlier, he simply hasn't been good enough for a club aiming to challenge at the top end of a top league. So, in conclusion, there's been issues off the park, issues maybe in the dressing room, cliques perhaps developing within the dressing room, issues on the park, a lack of experience, wastefulness to a certain extent in front of goal, and of course no Florian Wirtz, but all of those problems are fixable. The priorities quite simply need to be to get Wirtz back fit. I'm not quite sure when he's set to return, but you need to get him back fit and integrated back into the team sensibly. And you also need to address the goalkeeping issue in the January transfer window. That said, it isn't all doom and gloom at Bayer Leverkusen. On paper, they have such an exciting squad and Xabi Alonso, his appointment, arguably one of the most romantic managerial appointments of the last decade. Maybe that's just us here as maybe self-proclaimed football purists saying that we're excited by this appointment. But there's just something about this news. There's something about this appointment which really excites me, Barlow. When we look at that performance against Schalke on the weekend, Leverkusen fans will take a lot of encouragement from the way that Alonso has started life in Germany. They saw off Schalke with that resounding 4-0 win and granted Schalke were abysmal, but Leverkusen showed signs that they can get back to the levels that they were at last season when they were so devastating in the attack and registered 80 goals. Just as an aside, we're all about narratives, aren't we, on this podcast? And Xabi Alonso's first game as a Bundesliga player also came against Schalke back in August 2014 with Bayern Munich. In terms of setup, Alonso set Leverkusen up in an attacking 3-4-3 formation and saw his side register 60% possession. While this was a small sample size, it was 90 minutes or so, I think we did get a good flavour of roughly what we can expect from Xabi Alonso's via Leverkusen. Alonso has said, and I quote, we want to play modern football. That means intensity with and without the ball, being more active than passive and with a strong mentality. The team has to know how we want to play. Dominant, intense, controlled, with a winning mentality. That was Football España who shared that quote. Barlow, so thank you very much for feeding that one into my consciousness. I think we saw early signs of that philosophy, shall we say, being implemented in the win last weekend. I am curious to see what extent Alonso can fully convey that message to his players and translate his desired approach into success on the park. I'm thinking in particular of how Thiago Mota <laughs> talks the talk with his fancy formations, but still hasn't really walked the walk, might never walk the walk, so to speak. So I'm just I'm just caveating that performance with that observation. I'm not saying that Alonso and Mota are the same person or that they have the same capabilities managerially but I do think we just have to wait and see at the moment we have to take the win with with a pinch of salt perhaps but something tells me in any event that Alonso might have a higher managerial ceiling than Thiago Mota but I'll come to you very shortly just to find out a little bit more about what we learned about Alonso the manager from his time in Spain but before I do so I do just want to point out that Musa Diaby and Jeremy Fringpong were once again, a joy to watch down 
Leverkusen's right. They were a joy to watch last season down the right when it clicked, and it absolutely clicked on the weekend against Schalke. Diaby providing two assists for Jeremy Fringpong. Hopefully, Alonso can get them performing like that consistently over the course of the rest of the season. Barlow, Alonso, of course, coached the Real Madrid youths as well as the second team at Boyhood Club Real Sociedad. So what can you tell us about what we have learned about Xabi Alonso, the manager from his time in Spain? Yeah, I think it's very hard. A lot of people, and perhaps myself included, get swept up in kind of the suave image that we have of Xabi Alonso, sort of clean cut in his suit, speaks very well, very assured. He is the the quintessential kind of stylish modern footballer and, and certainly an icon of an era. And and yeah, I think there's a lot of hype about him. I mean, he got Real Sociedad's B-side back into the Segunda, back into the second division for the first time in, I think, about 60 years nearly. It was his first time since the 60s, certainly. So that kind of goes to show just how kind of talented he was. And okay, they struggled last season, but it's worth remembering that the, the second division is a very tough place for for B-sides and these days certainly very rarely do they stay in that kind of second division it's it's very tough to to stay in once you're there if you're a B-side so and and you're talking about as well a side that lost a lot of players to the first team because they graduated into Imanol Aguathil's side which was very which goes to show kind of the development that they had under him and yeah I, I kind of expect to see quite a vertical Xabi Alonso especially in the Bundesliga where you have kind of that extra sort of space available on the counter-attack where that's kind of the bread and butter of the league. What stands out to me is that although Alonso has um, drank from the fountain of knowledge that is kind of Guardiola and Jose Mourinho, he's also mentioned Rafa Benitez as one of his reference points as the manager, which, which I find interesting because he's certainly not the fashionable name in football nowadays. I think some people think he's maybe a slightly outdated in his methods. So, so it's interesting that he still uses him as a reference point. I think Benitez for, for some of his flaws was very organized and, and very much sort of a safety first manager. I expect Alonso to play with the handbrake off a lot more. But in terms of counter-attacking and in terms of, if you think of, if you picture Chabi Alonso, you picture the Alonso move, it's that take the ball, turn out, and then spray that pass kind of across the field into space for an attacker. And I think you can expect to see a lot of that in Chabi Alonso's teams. And he'll be a really interesting manager to watch because as you say, he certainly talks the talk. He has all of the ingredients necessary for this to be sort of a perfect Sort of manager in essence. I mean, he's played at Bayern Munich under Pep. He's played at Real Madrid under Jose, which is two totally opposing uh, kind of styles and philosophies in many ways. So, yeah, how that kind of blends out into Xabi Alonso, how he puts his own personality onto that, it'll be it'll be entertaining to say the least. And I'm I'm very excited to to keep hearing updates from you, Ali, on on how it's going. Absolutely, Barlow. Yeah, plenty to like plenty to love about the prospect of Xabi Alonso managing Bayer Leverkusen and let's not forget they are still well in with the shout of progressing to the knockout stages of the Champions League certainly at the time of recording that may or may not still be true by the time this episode is released domestically as well they're not a million miles away from the European spots so yeah I think the fact that they've acted quickly Leverkusen was 
necessary and commendable. And it also gives them the chance to, yeah, go on and still have a really positive season. Okay, dokie. We will park our analysis of German football there. We're going to take a quick break before coming back to have a look at Spain. Let's not forget that it's El Clasico week. We'll be right back. As I pointed out at the end of part one of the podcast, it is indeed El Clasico week. By the time you listen to this, Barcelona may well be in full crisis mode if they have not managed to reverse their defeat in Milan and beat Inter at Camp Nou in the Champions League. There will be no respite for the Blaugrana though as they head to the Santiago Bernabeu on Sunday. Last time out, they broke a five-game losing streak to Real Madrid in emphatic fashion, but Carlo Ancelotti's side are probably favourites for this one again. How are these two teams coming into the match and what are the consequences of each result for these two sides? Yeah, Barcelona are in a bit of a funny place at the minute because two weekends ago they went top of the table after Real Madrid drew against Osasuna. That was the first time that they finished a weekend in La Liga top of the table since 2020, if I'm right in saying. But the mood around Camp Nou has really disintegrated into what was a pretty good feel-good factor before that international break. I mean, injuries have very much, injuries and the break itself, have very much broken the rhythm of Barcelona. Um, Xavi Hernandez said that before the international break, we were flying. Now we are not. And those injuries too, yeah, they've kind of broken them to an extent. I mean, they've had sort of six, seven injuries over the last three, four weeks. It would be now a lot of those in defence. They only have Sergio Roberto as the right back. Ronald Araujo, um, Jules Koundé and Andreas Christensen are all out, which means Eric Garcia and Gerard Piquet are their only fit um, central defenders by, by trade. And in addition to that, the kind of sensations of those games since they came back from the international break have been poor to say the least. I mean, they they got a 1-0 win against Mallorca. Then there was that defeat to enter in the Champions League 1-0 at the Giuseppe Miazza. And that was followed by a 1-0 victory over Celta Vigo in those three games. And their XG has dropped below two, I think, for the first time since the opening game of the season, which shows you that yeah, the attacking sensations have not been good. The feeling is not great. They're struggling to create danger. Lewandowski, beforehand, he looked kind of unstoppable. Now he's been conspicuous by his absence, and that's not all his fault. His supply line has been severely interrupted. You look at that forward line, and Dembele has been fantastic at the start of the season, but he still has that element of um, of erratic sort of play to his game that, makes him so unpredictable for in a good way sometimes, but also can lead to wasted chances and wasted um, opportunities to supply the ball. But if you look at the forward line apart from that, and we were praising this Barcelona forward line before the season, or certainly I was, and you look at it and you think they've got such a wealth of options that that's going to really play into their hands and they'll be able to just throw on these attackers willy-nilly when they need to, and they'll all come in and they'll all be sharp and it'll be sort of a like a flooding of the pitch almost of these sort of talented attackers that are all fresh, they're all fits and they're all on form and that will be kind of unstoppable for the opposition. But apart from 
I mean, Lewandowski is obviously a fixture. I think Dembele has reached that point too. But Rafinha has been uh, less than impressive in recent games, to say the least. He continues to take the wrong decisions. He continues to struggle to beat his man. He's been playing on the left at times too, which doesn't help. And and he looks very much out of sorts. And, and to be honest, has not been amongst their best forwards. Ferran Torres is short of confidence and has been since the end of last season. His movement continues to be good. He continues to to fit the system in essence, but struggles to actually have the impact that that movement creates or the chances that he gets. And then there's Ansu Fati, who's doesn't quite look fully fit, but he probably creates the most actual danger when it comes to the goals compared to the other sort of three forwards that I mentioned or two forwards that I mentioned there. So you you end up with that over reliance on Lewandowski and Dembele, and if one or two of them is off their game, not finding the space, then it makes Barcelona a much weaker side. And I think you can look at those three games, they were kind of mitigating factors, the three games since the international break. There was Mallorca, where it was it was very much off the back of an international break. We've had a load of injuries, and as they were saying in Catalonia, tres puntos y capacasa, like three points and just get home, forget about it. Let's not think about that match anymore. But in the context of the Inter defeat, which I think, okay, they were one-dimensional. They were very poor. I'm not defending that performance at all. But I think once you go 1-0 down, a team like Inter, who are good, they have like good players to sit in and defend. It's not like you're, you're attacking sort of a relegation candidate in La Liga who's sitting in and defending. I think it's trickier than a lot of people appreciate to break that down. Granted, they weren't great. And then the Celta game, the problem with that is that they won that game, but it was almost exclusively down to sort of Marc-Andre Stegen and a couple of very key interventions from Eric Garcia and Gerard Piquet. This was a game in which they looked good for the first half hour, but they totally lost control in the second half. And that, as much as anything, is is concerning because you've got those defensive injuries. They're not defending well. They've got those attacking problems. They're not scoring. They're not free scoring anymore. And then in that Celta game, they lost control. So that's all three sort of key areas of the pitch. The things that they want to do, they're unable to do. So coming into off the back of that, I think I kind of make Real Madrid favourites for this match. Real Madrid are operating fairly smoothly, but even they, as kind of the fixtures pile up, have looked a little less shiny and a little less clean, um, a little less neat and tidy. Since they came off the international break, they dropped their first points against Osasuna, as I said. Karim Benzema missed that penalty against Shakhtar. I think that was one of their better attacking performances, but they still only won it by one goal and they struggled to put away their chances in that match. And then this weekend, similarly, I mean, they were far more in control and they looked much more solid defensively, but they weren't particularly impressive against Hatafe to say at least it was very much a three points and get home game for themselves in that in that match so they again they're kind of winning games in a tighter fashion than they were before the international break they've got two key issues one of them is the fitness of Thibaut Courtois who is yet to return from sciatica he's dealing with pain Angelotti says he'll be fit but I mean he's still not training and when he's already had one relapse so we're not quite sure if he'll make it Karim Benzema is set to start in the Champions League and I think he will be fit but there's a difference between being fit and sharp. And as we saw against kind of Osasuna and in against Shakhtar, I think Benzema's, the very fact of him being there is important because it, it provides them with a sort of focal point, provides them with movements, it provides them with something to feed off. But 
it still doesn't make them sort of effective in front of goal. And Benzema, although he he has been good in those two games, and I expect him to be important, it's a difference between him being sharp. And if we were to if we were to boil Real Madrid down last season, as much as that's silly to do so, and we we perhaps do that too much in the media as a whole. If we were to boil them down to sort of two key factors in the Champions League last season, it was Courtois and Benzema. So if those two are not off form or if those two are sort of not quite fully fit, then that, that's obviously a problem for Ancelotti. Um, adding to that, the defensive issues. I mean, they've kept, kept three clean sheets in their 12 matches so far. First one in La Liga at the weekend. Vinicius Jr. and Fede Valverde have really been stepping up for them at every point that they've needed to. But but against a side like Barcelona, which is definitely their biggest test of the season so far, there's a risk that they, those players don't stand up or, or don't manage to get that opportunity to, to sort of pull them out of a hole. So I think a lot of this game will be decided on kind of Ancelotti's tactics, to be honest, how much of the ball he wants. He said that we'll see various Real Madrid's this season. We'll see Real Madrid pressing high, dropping low, depending on the opposition and... In this context, I, I'm fascinated to see how much of the game he wants to dominate, how much he wants control. I think he's maybe even better off ceding control to Barcelona and trying to hit them on the break. Because I think without Ronald Araujo to deal with the threat of Vinicius, that's a big issue for Barcelona. And I think they'll really struggle to keep the Brazilian quiet. Moving on to kind of the consequences of this match. A draw, I think, kind of suits Barcelona a little bit better just because they will have their injured players, obviously. They're in a poorer moment of the season. They're not coming into this fully fit. So I think a draw kind of suits them. If Real Madrid were to win, well, I'll deal with the Barcelona win, actually, first. I think Carlo Ancelotti has this incredible ability to take everything so calmly. He's the picture of tranquility. He's the picture of peace. And he makes everything in football smaller. Like I mean by that, he takes the big issue that the media wants to hit on. He takes the controversy... And he speaks about it bluntly. He speaks about it honestly in a few words, very matter of fact. And the issue all of a sudden sort of, there's, there's a bit of air kind of like comes out. The pressure is kind of released when Ancelotti speaks. So I think if Real Madrid to lose this, then it's not a disaster, but maybe it does take away from the aura of this Real Madrid side. And yeah, okay. I'm, I'm always a little bit skeptical when people use those kind of words, but what I mean by that is the confidence that Real Madrid have so far this season, they've played with, sort of supreme confidence as I've mentioned in the past where they just believe that whatever happens they're going to win and that also induces a fear into the opponents so yeah Kike Sanchez Flores at the weekend I think um, the Spanish football podcast mentioned that he sort of didn't bother almost didn't bother attacking Real Madrid until the final five minutes because he just knows how much of a threat they are how many assets they have and, and also the habits so the habit of winning those games I think it was almost a shock when Osasuna equalised that Real Madrid didn't go on and get the winner in that sort of 1-1 draw. And so I think those kind of factors, if they were to get beaten by Barcelona, perhaps it reduces that their own belief, it reduces the fear factor against them, and it makes them just a little bit more mortal um, if they were to be beaten here. For Barcelona, I think it's a, it's a really interesting situation because I think if if they were to be beaten, Xavi will face the first serious doubts about his management. Last season was kind of a free hit. They had excuses. They weren't a strong squad. This season, 
although there are mitigating factors, as we've discussed, there are injuries. This is still a side that must win this season. It's a side that must challenge. And I think it's on him to ensure that they do so. He said ahead of the Inter game that he'd rather be a player um, than a manager tomorrow night. And I think perhaps he is feeling that pressure and it threatens to really kind of capsize their season if they were to lose this match and then drop points again in the following weeks. They've got a tricky fixture list. And I think it could raise questions conceptually over what Xavi Hernandez is doing and and over sort of his time at Barcelona because so far he's been the Messiah. So far he's come in, he's cleaned things up and more or less we've seen a positive trajectory. This could be the first step back. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating encounter. Uh, we've spoken extensively about Sevilla at the beginning of this season as they seek to wrestle their way out of a stagnating project at the Ramon Sanchez Pizuan. Los Nervion Nenzes have finally admitted the first of their errors and sacked Hulen Lopetegui last week after Borussia Dortmund beat them 4-1. Jorge Sampaoli, who left Marseille in the summer, has returned to Seville for a second spell. Talk us through what finally broke the camel's back and what kind of surgery Sampaoli needs to perform on this side, Barlow. Yeah, I wrote about this, and I think for La Liga Loda, and I think the, the way this was handled could really lift, lead to kind of a shift at Sevilla. I think it could be the point of revolution almost. There's two characters I think have come out of this terribly. One of them is Jose Castro, Pepe Castro, the president of Sevilla, and one of them is Monchi, the sporting director, who we know so much about. And yeah, okay, I won't get into it too much in terms of what's gone wrong for Sevilla, because we've already discussed that this season, but in terms of how this happens, I mean, we all, I think the majority of the of the football cognoscenti in Spain thought that Julian Lopetegui should have gone last season. I think we thought his cycle was up. It was a surprise. He stayed. Couple that in with poor signings, which is obviously down to Monchi. I think everyone knew that Jules Koundé and Diego Carlos would leave, but we assumed that Monchi would be able to replace them. And maybe Nianzu and Marco do turn out to be a good pairing, but so far they've not. He should have been sacked before. And I think the timing of this sacking has really reflected poorly on them. So they had an international break in which it would have been the, the sensible time to sack him. They then are beaten by Atletico Madrid 2-0 at home. It's a poor performance. They didn't look good. And the decision is essentially taken then. But he's maintained in the job until the Dor- after the Dortmund game on the Wednesday night. So three, four days later, everyone knows he's gone. He's essentially sent out there as a lame duck for that Dortmund match until Jorge Sampaoli can come in. And just the way it was handled was very, very poor. I think even though he was responsible for some of the issues and he had to go, I think the fact that he was maintained in this position, he was disrespected by the club. I think the way they treated him has really caused the fans to turn on Pepe Castro and Monchi. And now they find themselves in the relegation zone for the first time in about 18 years, I believe. They have just five points from their eight games. Sampaoli comes in, and I think there's a few factors that will give him an advantage and certainly get something out of the Sevilla side immediately. Certainly would take them back towards the mean. One of the things that we talk about with uh, Sampaoli is the fact that he's Bielcista in terms of he's very much Celo Bielsa in the way he likes to play, the daring football he wants. But also in the way that he talks, I think it'll be really useful because Lopetegui is very intense as well. But Lopetegui's discourse is dissimilar to 
to Sam Paoli's Lobtegi, if you're to put them in boxes, I think he's more of a scientist. He's more of a, a logician. He he works in kind of a logical way, whereas Sam Paoli, he speaks like a politician almost. He speaks in the kind of global terms of the what football means and in terms of what footballers need to give to the fans and then what they need to give to the team and how they need to sacrifice and that kind of emotional sentimental side can really benefit this Sevilla team I think that energy that enthusiasm will contrast to a tired Lopetegui it will contrast in the fact that Lopetegui is conservative San Paoli is bold it will contrast in the fact that Lopetegui is intense but he's not intimidating I think San Paoli has induces a wee bit of fear into his players he puts them on edge because he's he has a temper and he's he's so bouncy and he's he's so energetic but ultimately as well as well those problems we discussed this is a team that's also lacking legs they're a little bit one-dimensional in midfield and up front as well as we were saying with Barcelona I think Barcelona's issues are probably more temporary but the Sevilla side struggles to score goals and right now doesn't have a defensive solidity to rely on at the back either so you look at it and you say daring football without a goal scorer with a shaky defence is always going to be risky. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how Sampaoli does. I think he'll get a reaction out of this team, at least in the first few months, but their ceiling is is far lower and I don't expect them to be anywhere near the Champions League places this season. Yeah, but well, Sampaoli does seem, certainly from my perspective anyway, a coach more for the short term than, than Lopetegui would ever be. But yeah, it will be interesting, if nothing else, at the Ramon Sanchez Pijuan. Okay, we will draw to a close our analysis of Spanish football there. We're going to take a quick break before coming back to look at French football. We're going to look at one of the most surprising stories across the four leagues we predominantly cover on the podcast. We're going to put FC Lyon under the Road to Nowhere microscope. We'll be right back. France, FC Lorient, have sparkled and defied expectations in equal measure this season. Heading into match day 11, the side from northwest France had won six league games on the bounce. Only Barcelona can better that record across Europe's top five leagues. Looking at the league on table, Les Melou currently find themselves in second place, just one point behind league leaders Paris Saint-Germain. The club's early season form is all the more remarkable when we consider the fact that they only avoided relegation places by four points last year. So what factors have enabled Lorient's remarkable start to the 2022-2023 to league game campaign, Ali? Yeah, it's remarkable, Michael, just how well Lorient have done. I think that statistic that you mentioned really illustrates just how impressive Lorient have been this season. What I would say is, they did start last season rather well too, picking up 12 points from their first seven games and losing just once in the process. At the end of September, they sat in fifth place, which again was really quite surprising. However, they didn't then win again until February and only narrowly avoided the drop at the end of the season. This time around, however, they do seem more accomplished ostensibly anyway and while I have my doubts that they'll be able to sustain their push for European football over the course of the full season they should probably be able to finish comfortably mid-table 
that said, and this will maybe offer more cause for optimism to Royal fans and to purists more generally who like to see the underdog do well. There was an article in the official league and website which highlighted the fact that seven of the last 10 teams have taken 19 points when the first eight games of a season have ended the campaign in the top three. So that at least seems like a rather positive omen for Les Merlu. The expected goal difference is, however, raining on Royans parade somewhat. It places them 12th in the same way that the expected goal difference placed Union Berlin uh, about mid-table in Germany when we covered them in the last episode. So in terms of Lorient, they are clearly outperforming the underlying numbers. That said, again, they are still playing some lovely football. They are scoring some lovely goals and they have a squad packed with exciting young talents. Over and above all of that, they have a coach in Reggie Lebris who has effortlessly made the step up from coaching the club's reserves to coaching the club's first team. Now, you might remember over the summer, Lyon parted company with Christophe Pellissier and replaced him with Lebris, who had served as the club's academy manager for a decade, as well as coaching the reserves for seven years. So I suppose we can say that Lebris has taken a very similar path into first team management as Julien Stéphane who of course spent time as a coach in Rennes Youth Academy and with the reserves before being appointed first team manager. Franck is as well. He coached the reserves at Lens before taking on the main role at the Stade Bollier de la Lise. So when we take that into account, I think Liberty's time with the reserves and the Youth Academy will be beneficial for both Rabu himself and the club on the whole. Coincidentally, Matteo Guendouzi and Ilan Melier came through the Royal Academy under Lebris' watch. And I'm going to mention Stefan again. I love Stefan as a coach. We saw how Stefan's time with the Rennes Youth Academy shaped Stefan as a coach, willing to place faith in young players. We saw the role, for example, that Stefan played in bringing through Eduardo Camavinga, Adrian Truffert. And the early signs suggest that Lebris will do likewise, i.e. he will put faith in young players and he will give them the platform from which to flourish. I want to spotlight three young talents in particular. I want to spotlight 22-year-old Enzo Lefay. I want to spotlight 23-year-old Terra Moffey. And I want to spotlight 20-year-old Dango Utara, who are all flourishing under Lebris' management. Moffey... He scored eight goals in 10 league games this season, spearheading Lyon's 4-2-3-1 formation. Now, his underlying numbers are, for the most part, unconvincing. There's a lot of red on his FB ref scout report. And he has endured barren spells in the past, which have coincided, we do need to say, with difficult periods generally for Lyon. But that said, Moffey's eight goals have come from 6.3 expected goals this season. So that suggests that maybe he can finally find that season-long consistency. You know, he's not outperforming his XG significantly. His goals and expected goals roughly align. So I don't think we can be too concerned in that regard. Utara is being deployed out wide on the right and out on the left, scoring four goals and providing five assists and certainly going into the game on the weekend only Kevin De Bruyne, Neymar, Leo Messi and a certain Gerard Delefeo 
could better Butara's output in terms of assists across Europe's top five leagues. So that's some really quite esteemed company for the 20-year-old from Burkino Faso. Now, for me, Enzo Lefe is the main man at Lyon these days, having come through the club's aforementioned youth academy. Typically plays as either an eight or as a ten, harnessing his ability to create, to unlock defences with pinpoint passes and his ability to press vigorously. Top Bins Talk, excellent account on Twitter. They said, and I quote, Enzo Lafay is a joy to watch in the centre of midfield. He possesses a great mix of tenacity and finesse, does the hard work out of possession, but moves the ball so well from a deeper lying role. Great awareness, sharp feet, and always looking for quick forward passes. Now, looking at his statistics, no player has applied more pressures or made more tackles across Europe's top five leagues than Enzo Lefay. He sits fourth across those top five leagues for shot-creating actions too. And just looking at his percentiles, 86th percentile for progressive carries, 95th percentile for dribbles completed, and 98th percentile for he passes. In this sense, his underlying numbers are really quite encouraging. And I think what's most promising is the fact that he's really stepped up this season. He's taken on more responsibility and that's all been to his side's significant benefit. Before I move on, we do just have to note that Lefay's origin story is really quite somber. You might have heard Julian Laurent speaking about this on the Totally Football podcast. Enzo Lefay's father was a gangster who spent several years in prison and then committed suicide, which is just tragic. And I think for Lafay to have overcome that difficult childhood, that difficult start to life, I think that makes his rise to one of the most promising players in world football right now. I think that makes his rise all the more remarkable. Looking at the team again on the whole, quite simply, it seems to have clicked for Lorient under Le Bleu. He has rejuvenated a side which, by all accounts, looked at real risk of stagnating and probably regressing, particularly when we consider the fact that they did lose the talents of Armand Rolienti over the summer. Rolienti, the author of several absolute screamers over the last few years in any great goal montage from the last two or three years, you're sure to see at least a couple of Lorientes strikes for Lorient. He, of course, moved to Sassuolo over the summer. Now, there's no chance they'll win the league. I know they're only a point behind PSG, but it would be great to see them go on a cup run of sorts. The only major trophy the club has actually won in its history was the Coupe de France back in 2002. And the winning goal in that final came courtesy of none other than Jean-Claude Darshville, who, of course, spent some time at Rangers. Circling back to present day, Lorient's season has been laced with narrative, it's been laced with storylines. We've mentioned a few of them already. They really are a road to nowhere European football podcast dream in that regard. On a closing note, I feel like we have to mention the fact that Reggie Lebley's 19-year-old nephew, Theo Lebley, scored a majestic late winner against Lille on match day nine. This moment seemed for all the world like some scripted clip in an Amazon all or nothing series. The way he takes the ball down, the way he jinks away from his man, the way he slots the ball under the keeper, superb. And that all came a day after his 19th birthday too. You almost couldn't write the script. The manager's nephew 
just after his birthday, scoring an 89th minute winner, a solo goal at that. Brilliant. You wouldn't bet against more magical moments like that at the Stade de Moustoir this season, based on how Royan have started the campaign. Okay, we will conclude our analysis of Royan there. A really interesting case study, and I know I use that word case study all the time, but it's it's really applicable here for, for Royan. We're going to turn our attention to Italy now. We're going to speak to Michael about his trip to see Bologna on the weekend. We'll be right back. On Saturday night, Michael, the lucky sod, found himself at the Renato Dallara to watch a battle at the wrong end of the Serie A table as Bologna hosted Sampdoria. Intriguingly enough, the clash saw two former treble winning teammates at Inter Milan, Thiago Motta and Dejan Stankovic, face off in the dugouts. So, Michael, how was your matchday experience and which coach were you most impressed with tactically? Yeah, I mean... I'll kind of answer the second one by providing a bit of back context to the first, but the experience as a whole was absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, Bologna is an absolutely wonderful city and I'd recommend anybody to go there in the Emilia-Romagna region in Italy and, you know, in a region maybe more known for its motor cars than its football teams. But Bologna were... Yeah, the, the city was great and sort of the experience of going to the stadium was fantastic. You know, it's capital of, sort of food, one of the food capitals in Italy. And But when you sort of make your way up to the San Luca, which is a really nice church at the top of a portico pathway, on the way, as you sort of do this big climb all the way up to the top, your sort of farewell site is the Bologna Stadium, the Renato Dallara which we, of course, went to later on. And sort of going there, it was, I must say, when I was there, it was maybe one of the safest I'd ever felt at a football game, probably something I wasn't expected, although I think the same could be said from the city as a whole. And, yeah, the experience itself was really good. You know, it's quite a big stadium. It's got this really iconic sort of clock tower on the right-hand side from the position we were sat. We were sort of sat opposite the main stand, so we were sat next to the travelling Sampdoria fans. And, and you are quite far away from the pitch, which is important, and I'll kind of come on to that as to later, because it does have an old Olympic track going around the pitch. But overall, the atmosphere was pretty good. Near the Sampdoria fans, they sort of really came in full voice from Genoa. And yeah, it was. I was really excited to see how Thiago Motta and Dejan Stankovic got on. Although maybe I shouldn't have been. The quality of football was absolutely diabolical. It was maybe one of the worst games I've watched in person. It's maybe one of the worst Serie A matches I've watched since doing the podcast. I mean, there was just so little on offer in terms of quality. And, you know, it certainly belies their position. Bologna 17 in the table, Sampdoria winless in nine games, rooted to the bottom of the top tier in Italian football. And you could really see how, but despite Sampdoria's lowly position, I thought tactically they were the slightly better side. Now, Bologna took the lead in the first half for Nico Domingos kind of hit a shot low into the ground and gave the goalkeeper no chance, really, that Sampdoria failed to deal with. And towards the second half, we saw, 
we saw Dejan Stankovic, he lined up with a 4-1-4-1. Thiago Motta, you might perceive as a 2-6-2. It was nothing more than a 4-4-2. And, you know, certainly kind of gradually dragged some of those wide players back from his earlier days at Jenner and even, you know, from Spezia in his early days as well. But it was... Yeah, Stankovic went in very conservatively, maybe looking to get a point. And when they went 1-0 down, he suddenly decided to be a bit more ambitious with their play in the second half. And it reaped the rewards. They got their equaliser, um, I think around the hour mark. And then they, if anything, looked the more threatening team as Thiago Motta came under intense scrutiny. You wouldn't have really been able to tell it too much. There were some groans throughout the stadium. But again, is that the... I suspect that was sort of the how far apart all the fans were in terms of being able to feel it, especially given we, where we were sort of sat opposite to the main stand. But it's actually, he decided to take off Marco Anatovic when his team chasing a much needed victory against bottom of the table in the 65th minute for a podcast regular over the years, not normally for too many of the right reasons in Joshua Xerxes, who came on and contributed very little. And it ended up being a pretty, well, no, an extremely stale 1-1 draw, which was, of course, the polar opposite in terms of staleness and condition that all the beautiful food arrived in in the city. But, it, yeah, I mean, kind of reading into it more and sort of seeing the context for this, that one of the issues that sort of Bologna are facing with Thiago Motta is that a lot of people may have read about Sunis Mihailovic, the manager who was let go earlier in the season. You know, an amazing footballer for Inter Milan and Lazio, but also overcame leukemia twice during his stint at Bologna. Despite this, there was almost a bit of a calmness and they were always pushing around the mid-table mark and never really, they've not been in threat of relegation since the whole time. We've done this podcast and he was sort of acrimoniously dismissed for Thiago Motta, who... Despite getting a manager of the month, we spoke about him quite positively on the se- podcast last season at Spezia. You know, he got sacked from Genoa in his first job. And then at Spezia, although he kept them up, which was quite a good job because they were odds on favourites to go down the season before, he never truly convinced, but didn't seem to buy into the project either with the club also under uh, fighting against a transfer embargo. So this was a real big opportunity for Motta, but I think a lot of the Bologna fans upset with both Mihalovic's departure, but also Motta's arrival and underwhelmed by it. There's been a lot of drama and, you know, given I said this was one of the safest cities, it actually emerged that a group of between 15 and 30 Bologna ultras approached the training ground uh, following the game shortly after them and Motta actually intervened to try and break out anything from the players, but threatening that their next visit wouldn't be so peaceful so it goes and there is starting to get a really ugly feeling towards this team I mean in terms of where they will go there's an abundance of talent in the likes of Soriano, Ricardo Ossolini, Marco Arnautovic, Musa Barrow, Nico Dominguez is a great central midfield option and demonstrated that with his goal in the game but Motta's got to start turning things around quickly and so does Stankovic as well and but I must say, of the little evidence I had, although Stankovic doesn't have anywhere near as much in terms of playing quality to work with, I'm a bit more confident that he might find success. Obviously, he had great success in Serbia before this job as well. And it's maybe just built up a bit more of a coaching philosophy, even though, you know, it was certainly a philosophical approach that Motta tried to apply, but not really been replicated in terms of his, the 
type of play that his team has. But yeah, overall, I would certainly recommend going to the stadium. It was a fantastic experience and yeah, in a beautiful city also. This time last year, Inter Milan were the champions of Italy and this time nine months ago, they looked well on course to hold on to their Scudetto. Fast forward nine games into the current season, the Nerazzurri find themselves adrift of the top four with only a Coppa Italia triumph to show for Simone Inzaghi's tenure at the club. Despite this, they recently produced an excellent, albeit controversial victory. Thank you for putting that in, Michael. Uh, over Barcelona and packed this up with an important victory over Sassuolo. Just where exactly are Simone Inzaghi's interside right now? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because I certainly did not see, I did not foresee Inter Milan picking up the victory over Barcelona going into that game. And, you know, just avoiding those, obviously, the Anzi Fati moment. I actually thought the worst one was at the end of the freeze penalty not being given. Um, for handball in the game, I, I couldn't believe that they didn't get the decision and it just seemed that the occasion had really got to the referee on that one. But my word, didn't Milan need it because they'd had a catastrophic start to the season where kind of going into that game, I think they were ninth in Serie A. They'd just come off a defeat where they'd had the lead to Roma and they'd also lost to Udinese, who we spoke about on the podcast last time. They'd lost 3-1 to them before, which by, by their standards is really pretty disastrous. And... But yeah, they've responded in style. A great win, despite all the sort of controversies. It was still a great win for Inter Milan against Barcelona. And then they followed it up with, it was a two a narrow, but quite convincing performance against Sassuola, who look a bit rejuvenated under the MEC after a sluggish start to the season, where Edin Dzeko was there to score a brace and secure them a free, much needed three points in Serie A. But what, what one of my sort of main concerns with Inter Milan and where this team is going under Simone Inzaghi is, I mean, Inzaghi built up a great reputation during his time at Lazio. and But even then, even with his best teams, they could be rather patchy. You know, in the first season we did this podcast, I think three seasons ago now, they've gone on this tremendous run where they've gone on a massive winning run through winter 2020 and kind of going towards when lockdown hit us and seemed to really disrupt what could have been really good title chances for him before falling away a little bit afterwards. And Inzaghi's team, you know, Inzaghi's Inter started like a house on fire last season and were unable to maintain that because, and I think that one of the accusations that was thrown at them was that they were kind of building, he kind of, you know, he'd always, his Lazio team had always struggled a little bit defensively, maybe exposed more than ever when they got absolutely battered by Bayern Munich in the Champions League a couple of seasons ago. But I think that really, there was accusations that he was kind of building on the defensive footprint laid out by Antonio Conte and what certainly helped was Inzaghi carried on with a similar 3-5-2 formation, albeit much more attacking. But they still had relative success defensively last season. And, you know, if anything, it just kind of shows shrewd recruitment in picking a manager to succeed the footsteps of Conte. Of course, set the bike really high with that first Scudetto win in more than a decade. But Inter Milan have just generally seemed to have lost all that defensive ability since. And you just wonder, maybe the longer they're working with Simone Inzaghi, whether things like that are going to show. And I think what was really telling is that you look at the season where Inter Milan won the league, 
goals conceded from set pieces indirectly or directly was just one in the 2020-21 season when they won the league under Conte. Simone and Zaghi managed to maintain that. Again, joined best in the league, 21-22, conceded just one. And then this season, they're joined worst in the league, conceding three. And, you know, it was their undoing against Udinese. They took the lead against Udinese. Udinese got a quick goal back from a free kick and in-swinger from the right-hand side. Roma came to take the lead in that game, again, with an out-swinger but from a similar angle on the right-hand side. And I think one of the things as well, what's not been helping in Zaghi's case, is also is for, for the first time in a long time, Roma have had, into Milan, sorry, have had to really deal with the goalkeeping situation because Sami Handanovic has been a stalwart in that Inter Milan goal for a number of years. Again, another player who's been there for over a decade and has been a fantastic servant for the club. But it's no secret that even in their title season towards the end in 2021, he was showing signs that he was maybe his abilities were maybe starting to wane. And although it was actually his understudies undoing uh, Radu, Ionic Radu in the close up in the running to the tight the Scudetto race last season Handanovic had certainly played his part in some important Inter Milan moments not for the best especially in the Milan derby and this season he's had this real thing to count because he is the club captain Handanovic but they also brought in Andrea Nana from Ajax who returning from was a bit of a controversial drugs ban in itself and has found himself sort of really you know was one of the I guess sort of on the highest trajectories like going into um, when he served that drugs ban and has started, he was started, he was the European goalkeeper, Anana Hadanovic was in the league and Anana was, you know, playing his part in some of the better victories and it was similar goalkeeping style to David De Gea where he uses his feet a lot. But I think Inzaghi finally made that decision after the Barcelona win to put Anana in for the Sassuolo game. And I think that was crucial in sort of restoring some defensive parity in defence. Although they still conceded the goal, it was a much more unavoidable one than some of the recent ones they've been conceding. And going forwards, it's I think one of the biggest tests is going to be how Romelo Lukaku works. But the midfield three is still creative as ever. And there's still a lot of fun to watch, especially although they've lost Perisic, Federico DeMarco's coming on the left-hand side. And we saw a really impressive display against England recently, but he's looked really good for Inter also. So, yeah, I think it's still quite hard to tell, but overall, they're not predictable in the slightest right now. Lovely, as always, Michael. Well, that represents the end of another episode of The Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Thank you, Paolo, for your research, for your contributions, and thank you, Michael, for your insight into all the latest goings-on in Italy. Okay, all that's left for me to say is thank you to you, the listener. Hopefully you're staying safe. Hopefully you're staying well. We'll see you again in a fortnight's time. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.